What an awesome line. Hope was born. Welcome to Whitewater. Welcome again to the beginning of Advent. My name's David Vaughn. Welcome online. Campus friends in the room today. I love it. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, did you? Eat some turkey, have some pumpkin pie. Are you not sick of pumpkin pie now? You can give it to me. But I have a more important question to ask you today as we begin. How many of you all like to wait? Like to wait? Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I'm in the, I got the right audience. I'm in the right room at the right time because we hate to wait. I, I'm not just talking about waiting on that traffic light down the road here at 128 at the interstate. That is the longest traffic light ever in Ohio right there across from the driving range batting cage right there. One of my earliest Christmas memories was of my dad taking me to a department store to see Santa Claus. I couldn't wait. But when we got there to the store, the line was not only long inside, it stretched all the way till the line ended on the outside. It was freezing cold. And I looked up at my dad. And my dad, who wasn't a time waster either, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to see Santa. My dad said, uh, pretty cold out here. I said, yeah. He said, Dave, do you want to stand here a long time in the cold and see Santa, or let's go buy a present right now? I said, give me that present right now. See, I wasn't as dumb as I am today. But anyway, I, I instant gratification. My dad hated to wait. I, I think I might have inherited that. I hate to wait. But here's what I'm talking about today. We are a city, Cincinnati. We are a people in waiting. Are we not? Some of y'all have been waiting a long time for stuff around Cincinnati. We're, we're waiting to see if UC will make the final four in the College Bowl series. Let me prepare your heart now <laughs> for the inevitable waiting that you still might have to do. Shoot, we're, we're waiting for a winning professional team in any sport in the city of Cincinnati. Any sport, just name one. We're all waiting for the new Brent Spence Bridge to be built. When I'm retired down in South Carolina 20, 30 years from now, I'll come back and I might be able to go across that bridge when I come back to preach sometime. You know, that'll be great. Some of you, depending on your age, are waiting to see what you get for Christmas. You don't have to be young to wait about that. If you're older, you're waiting to see what you're going to get, and then you're going to wait for the credit card bill to arrive in January to see exactly what you spent. Some of us who are cheering JT on and doing such a good job, we're waiting to see how long that beard he's got is going to grow before he cuts it. I've been wondering in the waiting. And our staff team, we're just waiting to see when exactly Alan Cruz and Sarah Young were going to get married, and they did last Friday. And we are so excited about that. And they were over here in the first service on their honeymoon coming to church. That's better than a lot of us, I'm telling you right now. But there are some things that we are waiting on that are much more significant than those. I don't know about you, I just, when is COVID and anything that comes after it finally going to pass? I'm like waiting. I don't know. Jesus is going to come before that happens. We're waiting to see how high inflation goes because some of us who are older remember what it was like in the 70s when it hit high 
point. We're waiting for the supply chain to ease up, and we're all waiting with bated breath, wondering who will run for president in three years. I I just can't wait for us to all be divided again. God, help us. And now we're waiting to see what the new variant from South Africa will do. Everybody's scared all over again. To wait is a part of the human condition. To wait is to be human. We wait because something is missing that we think will make things better. And so we wait in anticipation that it will. But the longer that we wait, the harder, if you're not careful, if you don't work at it, the longer you wait, the harder it is to maintain joy and wonder. And that's what our new Advent series is all about. How do we keep the wonder in the waiting? See, the people living and waiting in the Bible waited thousands of years, a millennia, for a Messiah to come and deliver them. But they figured it out. They were able to wonder... And we're going to see some guys that wandered as they wondered and as they waited. And we want to focus this weekend on some kings who could teach us some very practical and powerful things. If we today watching online in front of your TV or screen or you in this room, if you're willing to humble yourself enough to learn and to listen, I will give you some ammunition to keep the wonder alive in the waiting. These guys were waiting for a Messiah, which led them ultimately to worshiping that Messiah. But I want to show you another king in this narrative of Holy Scripture that was not wondering or worshiping. He was worrying because he was so self-absorbed. He thought he was the king. The story begins in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It'll be familiar to some of us who have studied Christmas and preached on Christmas and taught about Christmas and read about Christmas in the Scripture for a long time. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, there's our first king, Magi, wise men, these are the other kings, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose in the east. We have come to worship him. Who are these magi, these wise men? Who are these strange men with a strange question? Where did they come from? Were there just three of them? (laughs) Were they all men? (laughs) Someone asked, do you know what would have happened if there had been three wise women Instead of three wise men, they would have asked for directions sooner, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, brought practical gifts, and there would be peace on earth. I went over a little better than I thought it would. Well, these guys who have been watching starry skies, they show up. And they stir up a lot of turmoil with the local authorities. They leave their gifts. They disappear, never to be heard from again. They go off of the writ of human history. But as characters in the original Christmas story go, their 15 minutes of fame, pretty enduring, pretty perplexing, and pretty exciting. 
It says that these magi from the east came seeking Jesus. They probably came from Persia. And I don't know if you've traveled a lot from Persia, but traveling from Persia to the promised land, to Bethlehem, to Judea, would have been a long trip. Can you imagine their neighbor's reaction back home as they pack up? What you packing for? I'm going on a journey. Well, where are you going? We don't know for sure. How far is it? We don't know that either. How long are you going to be gone? Well, we're not quite sure on that either. (laughs) For wise men, you sure don't know very much, do you? I bet their neighbors probably wondered, what are these guys up to? I've been wondering myself a little bit, what am I up to right now? With all of the waiting that we, I just described, all the waiting that some of you are doing, can we learn anything from these wise guys? These guys did a lot of wandering, but they may not have known how they're going to get there. They may not know where God was going to take them, but they did know a lot about how to keep wonder and excitement and anticipation and hope alive in the waiting before the fulfillment of their dream. Some of you in this room have been waiting for your deliverance for a long time. Maybe it's a hurt, a habit, a hang-up, an addiction, a family issue, a health issue, a financial issue. Some of us here are waiting and counting on there being a Messiah for our mess. Who were these guys? The earliest historical records tell us that the Magi were likely a group from the people known as the Medes. Maybe you've heard of them. They were active throughout Babylonia and Persia during much of the writing of the Old Testament. The religion of the Magi, listen to this, these kings, was primarily based on sorcery, wizardry, and astrology. Our word magic comes from their name. But they were not magicians like pulling rabbits out of hats. They were kingmakers putting people in power. When they showed up, stuff happened. They were considered the scholars of their time. They were like walking in encyclopedias, hence the label wise men. Their teaching became known as the law of the Medes and Persians. Maybe you heard of that. It It was seen as the highest unalterable legal code. So in addition to being the voice of religion... Wise men and magi in their day served as scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, legal authorities. Our word magistrate today is another direct descendant of the root word magi. They acted as advisors to kings, interpreting dreams, divining wisdom. They could answer just about any question. So when they show up and say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? This is a big question. If they don't know, who knows? Many scholars think that these wise men first became interested in Jewish worship and life through another Old Testament guy, a prophet named Daniel. If you got time, man, you ought to look up Daniel sometime. He has a book named after him in the Old Testament. When you get to heaven, you're going to meet Daniel. He's going to say, did you read my book? I'll just give you a heads up. You want to say yes. (laughs) Daniel wound up in Babylon back then when the Jewish nation was taken into captivity in 587 BC. Daniel, he rose above all the other magi. He was chosen to serve in the court of the king of Persia, another king named Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was king. He wasn't a real king. Daniel knew there was a better king, a new king coming. And along with the other magi and wise men, Daniel did his best to serve the king. 
One day, the king in his day had a dream, and none of the other wise men could interpret it except for Daniel. (laughs) Daniel was the man. Daniel got his power, his wisdom, his ability from God. He was the ultimate wise man in his day. I don't know about you, but there are questions that people ask me. David, why does this happen? Why does that happen? Can you tell me about that? I don't know the answers. I have people tell me all the time, I had a dream. Could you interpret that dream? I think it's because you had Skyline last night. I don't know what that dream. But God does speak through dreams. We're going to find that out. Back then, the king had a dream, and the king said, you got to tell me the dream or I'm going to kill all you wise men if you don't tell me. (laughs) Daniel interpreted the dream exactly. So he became a very popular guy around that magi water cooler of his day. The Bible says that when they saw Daniel coming back then, they said, Daniel, my man, give me some rock. That's what, I don't think that's what they said. Anyway, Daniel was greatly elevated after this. He was made master of the Magi. And knowing Daniel's character, knowing Daniel's conduct, his devotion to God, we can be certain that he would have taken advantage of that opportunity to instruct all the wise men back then who lived in Persia about the true God and the prophecies of the Messiah, a true king was coming. Watch for him. And I believe that's how and why the Magi, when we come to Matthew chapter 2, were watching the skies for the signs of a coming king. And since these men were of tremendous influence and power at the time of Christ, when they show up and ask that question, Herod was understandably troubled. Here's what it says, Matthew 2, verse 3, next verse. When Herod heard this, that these guys were coming and said, where is he born king of the Jews? When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. (laughs) Herod's often disturbed. He was cray-cray. He was disturbed about everything. And all Jerusalem with him. Because when the king, and especially King Herod is disturbed, everybody around the king is disturbed. Now try to imagine this scene if you would. These men arrive in Jerusalem, no doubt, with a great deal of pomp and circumstance and show. These magi's typical garb would have included long cone-shaped hats like we associate with wizards. Uh, This is like Harry Potter meets Herod. That's what you have to imagine. They would have not been riding camels. Likely they would have been riding Persian steeds or Arabian, elegant Arabian horses. They would have probably likely even been traveling with a small army, especially with the treasures that they had, that they were toting. It was an imposing sight. Herod's army, small though that it was, was likely consumed at this time with the duties of the census ordered by Caesar Augustus. They're probably not hanging around the palace. They're out there doing other things, which we'll find out in another week what they were up to. This is not a great time. This is not a convenient time for a band of foreign kingmakers to be inquiring about an infant that they are calling king of the Jews, which was, after all, the title that Herod bore. It was the title that Caesar Augustus gave himself to him at his own coronation in 40 BC. That term, that title, king of the Jews, the Jews in their day hated that with Herod. A, he was not a Jew by birth. Number two, he was not a Jew by religion. So no wonder he was troubled. Matthew uses an interesting Greek word here when it says Herod's troubled. It says it means he was shaken or agitated, like the heavy-duty cycle of a washing machine. 
our young people would say he was shook. Just like some of you Buckeye fans were yesterday. You, you were shook. I didn't even know if John and Kelly Tizovich would be in church today after that. Yes, sir, I don't know, but they're here. They're faithful. He was shook. Why? Somebody's coming along saying, there's a king of the Jews. It's not me. Very self-absorbed. Very narcissistic. And in those days, you didn't have Google or Siri to get an answer to stuff. You had to ask a priest, a teacher of the law, for a Bible answer to a Bible question. And they would be required to give an appropriate answer if the king asked a question. So that's what Herod does here. And once he gets the answer, he plays it really cool. Look at what happens in verse number four. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He asked the question, as any king would, of his authorities and his wise guys around him. But he asked it, and he goes on the down low with his plan. He slyly decided to let these guys do his undercover work. And man, he's like a smooth criminal on this. Check this out. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. Is that what he's planning on doing? Find out in a minute. No, just the opposite. He's going to kill him. Not everybody. Oh, this is for somebody here. Not everybody who says they want to worship Jesus at Christmas really wants to worship Jesus at Christmas. There's more than one Herod in our life. There's more than one Herod in the room. I want to just talk about Herod. Just pause and put your finger right there before we finish their story. I want to tell you something about this guy because it helps create the context from which you will understand more this king. Do you know what the word or the name Herod means? Hero. It's so ironic because there was absolutely nothing heroic about him anywhere in history as a leader or a human being. The only worthwhile thing Herod ever did was build a temple, and even that was done for political favor. Herod, history calls Herod, Herod the Great. Here's a picture of him, Herod the Great. He's a real hottie, isn't he? Looks uh, like he has like a bow in his beard down there. I think he named himself. It would be appropriate because he thought he was the most important person, not only in the room, but in the world. Do you know anybody like that? A more appropriate name instead of Herod the Great would be Herod, Herod the Murderer. Because like all despots, he was intoxicated with power, having it and keeping it. And he brutally, forcefully removed anyone who was a threat to his power. Over the years, he killed and executed dozens of people to keep his power. I mean, look it up sometime. It's a part of history. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. 
Let me keep going. <laughs> I've got a good one. Anyway, he killed his sons. He killed even his own wife as he was convinced they were threats to his power. Which led Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the whole Roman Empire, to say it is safer to be Herod's sow than his son. And here we see, we can give him a new title, the Butcher of Bethlehem. He was like Hitler, Stalin, Norman Bates, Darth Vader, Thanos, all rolled into one. Human life meant nothing to him. Killing was his art, it's his, his passion, it's what he did best. So it is no surprise that Matthew tragically describes this in verse 16. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, we'll tell you about that in a second, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Can you even imagine the grief and the pain of this horrific act? Babies ripped from their moms and their dads' arms and slain on the dirty streets of Bethlehem. This is like 9-11, Pearl Harbor, Newtown, Connecticut, all rolled into one. Killing was what Herod was known for. And before the killing started, we go back to our story, verse 9, of these other kings. Back to verse 9, Matthew 2. They said, he said to them, go and find this Messiah and report back to me so I can worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, these wise men, magi, went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, I love this, when they saw the star, <laughs> they rejoiced. They were overjoyed when they saw the star. This wonderful star brought them all the way from Persia to Jerusalem, and now is moving again to Bethlehem. You know, I've been preaching on Herod and the wise men for like 20 years. I like, I, I try to, it's a challenge when you preach that many messages on wise men to say something new about the wise men. It, it can get a little routine for you. But I thought of a question this time in my preparation that I, I don't know why, I never thought of it before. I, 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 in all my research, I never like considered this. Here's the question. If the wise men saw the star and they followed it all the way from Persia, and when they went out, they saw the star and they were overjoyed, and they followed it right to Bethlehem, here's my question. Why couldn't Herod see the star? I don't know why I never thought of that. Have you ever thought of that? A kid just walked out of his palace balcony and said, oh, there's a star. I don't need those wise dudes. I'll just go myself and follow the star. Why couldn't Herod see the star? Mm. I think I know. Now you know, based on his history, I think he was blinded to it by his own paranoia, his own greed, his own self-centeredness. Because when you are not looking for the star and you're the star, you're in your own universe and galaxy and orbit. The other reason he couldn't see is he was blind because of his sin, because what sin does when you do it long enough, it cuts the optic nerve of the soul. What once was right suddenly is wrong. And what once used to be wrong suddenly feels right. 
And I bet you've had a friend or a family that you know is acting out in a way that's going to bring them harm and doesn't honor God, and you try to talk to them maybe at Thanksgiving or Christmas and say, you know, just a thought, are, are, are you sure you should be doing that? And if you've ever had anybody say it, they've diagnosed their problem beautifully, they'll say to you, I can't see what's wrong with this. I can't see what's wrong with that. And if you ever heard anybody say that, they've diagnosed their problem beautifully. They said it, I can't see. That's my explanation. Jesus is there for anyone who wants to see him. But we're so good at self-deception and being emperors and kings of our own little fiefdoms and kingdoms that we're blind to what God is up to. They love that star. The star is not the star of the story, but it leads you to the star. And I've often wondered, that star must have been amazing. I wonder what it looked like. See, every Christmas, the planetariums, the astronomers offer explanations of the Christmas star. Uh, some people think it was Jupiter or comet or a combination of the two. Some others think it was a natural phenomenon. I, I choose to think that it was a configuration of natural causes, but it was like the Shekinah. That's the word the Old Testament uses, the Shekinah glory of God. The same glory that was with Moses and the Israelites when it led them in a pillar of fire by night. And, it, it, you know, it was a cloud. And it was the same Shekinah glory of God that shone round about the shepherds. Again, we'll get to them another week where you just knew this is a light of another kind. And into the great darkness, Advent is celebrating the light that has come. Nobody knows. The Bible doesn't explain it, whatever the star was. But it brought great joy to them, and it brought them to the promised one. And Matthew 10, 11, the next verse, is just pungent. It's packed with stuff. On coming to the house. Now, I, I don't want to ruin your Christmas nativity set. So little ears, maybe, just, maybe they won't pay attention to Pastor David. All of our Christmas plays have the shepherds and the wise men all showing up at the manger the same night. The reality was that wise men didn't get there till a long time after Jesus was born. That's why it says on coming to the house, not the manger, not the stable. That's also why Herod said two years and under, I'm going to kill these people, these boys. Because he didn't know how long it took for them to get there. And he said, I'll just play it safe. I'll go two years and under. If it had been the same night, he would just dispatch people the same night. So he didn't even know. So years later, though, it's all part of the Christmas narrative that we celebrate. But on coming to the house, these wise guys who saw the starry skies now see the child with his mother Mary. And notice what they did. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures. This is unbelievable. You know, when you don't know Jesus... The last thing that people want to do is give money to him because they don't know him. These guys are foreigners. This is the amazing thing about Christmas. God led pagan men out of pagan religion in a pagan land to come face to face with Jesus. And what's the first natural response of meeting Jesus? I got to give him something. That's why we give gifts at Christmas, by the way. They bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So if you ever want to know 
maybe you don't believe in this Jesus stuff or this Bible stuff, you ever want to know how the tradition and desire to give something to someone during the holidays and at Christmas, how that began, it can be traced right back here to these waiting, wonderful magi who gave expressive, extensive, and extravagant gifts to Jesus. The waiting of these wise guys finally paid off. If you are waiting for something big to happen in your life, could I just reassure you it's going to happen sooner or later? I'm not waiting for this world to get right before I get hope because I don't think it's getting better. I think it's getting worse. My hope is that there's a new world coming, a new heaven and a new earth that we're waiting for, the return of Jesus who will make all things right. It'll never be right here. I don't put my hope in anything I see anymore. I put it in my faith in that one that I can't see, but I will see one day. And we're just waiting to go home. Friend, this world has never been our home. So I want to give you hope today for that which you are waiting for. Oh, it may come eventually on earth. And if it doesn't, keep wondering. Keep hope alive. Keep wandering sometimes. God will supply that for you eventually. Hold on. The best is yet to come. He's always on time. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. And did you notice those four things they did in their wonder? If you're wise, you'll do the same four things this year. They bowed down. They worshiped. They opened their gifts, they, their treasures, and they gave. If you are waiting and wondering and you're starting to worry if you'll mimic your life after what these guys did, you will find wonder returning in your life. And the gifts that they brought, the gifts they gave, don't run past that either. They had special significance too. What'd they give? Gold, the most precious metal known to man even then. Gold would be a gift fit for a king, which Jesus was. They would give frankincense. An expensive fragrance, that would have been gift for a priest. Jesus is our high priest. And notice this third thing that they bring. It's a curious gift, myrrh. It's a very curious gift to give a baby because in their day, myrrh was the substance used in embalming the dead. Now, you bring a bottle of embalming fluid to the next baby shower you're invited to, and I promise you, you won't have to go to another one. You won't see myrrh on Babies R Us gift registry, right? Why'd they give myrrh? This would have been a gift for someone born to die, which he was. Even their gifts testified to the newborn king's royalty, his deity, and his death on behalf of humanity. I'm also guessing that it helped greatly assist Joseph and Mary financially. Because when you're newly married and you got a new one on the way and you don't have any money and you've got to escape to Egypt, which you read the rest of the chapter, you find out they did to spare the child, you need a little resource to get Jesus where he needs to be. Oh, that is so rich for us when we give financially. We don't even know it, but we're giving so that Jesus can go places that he can't go without our resource. 
And this is what the wise men did. Even their gifts testify to the joy and the ripple effect of generosity. And when you give, the, give, the joy comes from that, the person that gives it, and get, joy comes from the person that receives it. And this is amazing because most of us have been on both ends of that spectrum. I have. And when you say after a certain point that it's harder to receive lavish love than to give it, I'm like, we get really good at giving, and, and we should. The hardest thing is to accept a gift of love. Yet Jesus, who had all the gold and frankincense and myrrh in the universe, allowed humans to give to him. He received it. So I have learned over the years to accept a gift given in love. I was playing golf a few years ago, and one of the guys I was playing with, he had this new driver. Oh, man. I watched him hit it all day. He hit that thing so nice. On the last hole, I said, you know, could I borrow your driver? Could I just hit your driver on this last hole just to see if I hit it good? He said, sure. And I hit it, and I'm telling you, this is just absolute truth. It was the best tee shot I had hit all day. I said, hey, man, that's a nice driver. I said, I got to get me one of those. He said, well, here, take this one. He said, I got plenty of them. Really? Yeah, take it. I mean, I was so touched by his spontaneous act of generosity. I said, I like that driver. I said, let me tell you what else I like. I like that new car I saw you drive. <laughs> it's easy to give, and we're going to ask you to give this year to several things. Our annual Christmas Eve offering coming up, our toy store is upon us. Thank you for serving and giving to that. And we still have lots of toy store tags out there. If you overwhelming response to Operation Christmas Child in shoeboxes, I'd ask you to go one more level with that so we can provide Christmas to the marginalized and the needy and the, the, the ones who are really at risk, who are in a season of shortage right now. Those will be on your way out. But I want to ask you and talk to you a little bit about, as I close here, what gifts you may give this year besides the physical, besides the one that you bought online a couple of days ago. And I'm going to ask you not only to give it, but I'm asking you to receive these gifts because someone's going to come and offer you one and it's hard to receive. It's easier to give. But the giving and the joy comes in the giving and the receiving. And I'm going to ask you to give some gifts that will bring wonder to you and the recipient. I'm going to ask you to give some gifts that some people have been waiting to receive all year. And they're wondering and waiting to see if you'll give it by the end of the year. Let me give you a couple examples. How about if you give the gift of touch to somebody? Meaningful, appropriate, God-honoring touch. I'm not talking about God-dishonoring trust. Some of us have been through that way. But you will never know right now in this COVID-oriented season what a holy hug or a handshake or a pat on the back will do for someone. Let me tell you something about COVID. Here's what I missed. Human connection. I will never take for granted looking you in the face and looking you in the eye and giving you a holy hug and a high five. I will never take that intimacy for granted again, that connection. 
And right now in our world, isolation is deadly. And what people need is a touch from us. In a high-tech world, we got to have a high-touch church. Someone might be waiting on that close to you. How about a little one, our next generation, which is so valuable, just a pat on the head, says you matter. You're going to do something great for God someday. Or what about the gift of time? That's actually the most valuable gift, right? You know that, that you can give because you can always make more money. You can never make more time. Maybe call, text, email that person that you have been promising to spend time with, but life got hectic and busy, and it never happened, and they're still waiting. Or maybe it's the gift of forgiveness. Oh, man. How great a gift would it be for someone you've been carrying a grudge with for a long time for you to finally forgive that and try to move on? Someone said forgiveness is setting the captive free only to discover the prisoner was you. So maybe the gift you most need to give and the one someone in your family or circle of friends is waiting on is the gift of mending a quarrel, burying an ax, or apologizing for something you said or did years ago, but anger got you in trouble and pride has kept you there. Or how about the gift of attention? Maybe one more suggestion. Attention to someone that walks by you every day just crying out to be noticed. In a church this size, they're everywhere. People who we just pass them by, but we don't really know them and we don't know their name. But you'll see them every day where you work and where you shop and where you go to school. People who just want to be noticed as someone because no one does. I'll always remember years ago around Christmas time, we have a great family in our church, the Miller family, and Vicki Miller and her daughters Laura and Dana were serving one Christmas Sunday in our toddler's class, and they noticed one child who was having a very difficult time transitioning from mom to the class. Here, here's the part I love. The mom said to them, does anyone speak Spanish here? Because that's what I speak with him in our home. No one did that day, but Team Miller jumped into action during the week and came back the next Sunday having learned some simple words in Spanish, and they came back prepared to connect that next week with that unhappy toddler. The team greeted him in Spanish, cooed some simple Spanish phrases as they held him, and that kid was as happy as could be. Now that's Feliz Navidad. That's what I'm saying. And it's the church working right building a diversity in the midst of unity. It's also, by the way, the perfect metaphor for what God did in the person of Jesus. He came and dwelt among us. He learned a different language. He came down to our level to be a bridge so we could hear and feel his heart. If you trace all of the characters we're going to study in this Advent series, you will see that they all gave Joseph gave, the shepherds gave, the wise men gave, Mary gave, all because Jesus gave to them. And our last verse, verse 12, in the story today about the wise men, after they gave their gifts, having been warned in a dream 
not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, you always do go back differently once you met Jesus. Sure, they went by a different geographical route, but they went a different spiritual route. They left the house as different kings and wise men. They knew it wasn't about them, unlike Herod. They knew it was about him. And that's true of anyone who authentically worships Christ. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And that is true for so many of you this year. 148 new lives in that water have gone all in this year. That's why some of you are on fire for God like never before. It's why it's such a special place. And you can go home today in a different way, by a different route. You know, Scripture is silent about what became of the Magi after their visit, but I'm pretty confident that the God who led them to where they were by a special star warned them about the treachery of Herod in a dream. That same God, I'm sure, I'm confident, gave them enough truth to be brought into a fuller relationship with him. And so they went their way, just like you will do today, full of wonder, with a memory, though, they had that would last a lifetime. The good news of the Advent that we are beginning to celebrate, the good news is not that we are faithful in our waiting, but God is faithful in his coming. Not that we got it all together in our waiting, because we often don't and aren't, but God is faithful in his coming. And again, I'll end where I started. If you're waiting for something and you're worrying about that, do what the wise men did and put your trust in Jesus. Follow the star, follow the light to find him, and your wonder will return in your waiting. I mentioned the three gifts earlier that the Magi gave, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, which they used, I mentioned, to anoint or embalm the dead. I forgot to mention one other thing about myrrh that maybe you don't know. Myrrh back then was mixed often with wine, and it had an anesthetic effect. And they offered it to people who were being crucified to dull the excruciating pain they were in. They would offer a mixture of myrrh and wine and vinegar. And for some of you who are astute Bible scholars, you will remember when Jesus was on the cross, he was offered on a sponge that very myrrh-wine mixture that he refused. He wanted to experience the full effect of pain and sin for us. Who could have known except Jesus and those wise men that the gift of myrrh given by those kings that day at that house were foreshadowing Jesus' suffering and death 33 years later as the true King of kings and Lord of lords. So when you came in the room, you probably got some emblems, bread and juice that represents his body and his blood. If you got that, get it out now. If you did not, raise your hand. Someone from our team will serve you right there where you are. Keep your hand up. And as we take communion right now, I'm going to ask that you remember what Jesus did for you on the cross. The full weight of sin, physically, emotionally, mentally, 
spiritually. He took it upon himself. He was born to die so that we don't have to die and we can be reborn in the hope of heaven.